1: A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatsley. Lots to get through uh, this hour for you. We are live in Brazil as thousands continue to pay their final respects to soccer legend Pele, who will be buried later today in a private ceremony in the city of Santos. The emotional tributes just ahead, plus shocking scenes at a professional U.S. football game in Cincinnati, Ohio, Buffalo Bills safety, Demar Hamlin collapsing and going into cardiac arrest in the middle of the game. We are live at the hospital where he is being treated. Also on financial markets, an important day for global investors with the opening bell on Wall Street about to sound for the first time in 2023. It is looking like certainly all the green arrows there across the screen, certainly looking like a positive start uh, to the new year with all uh, the futures pointing higher. European stocks, on the rise as well, let's take a look here. The Wall Street Bulls hoping for a more profitable year after the S E and almost 20% drop in 2022, its worst performance since the financial crisis back in 2008. Rahel Solomon joins us live now. So, uh, Rahel, let's talk about 2023. What, in, what reasons, should I say, do investors have to be cautiously optimistic in 2023? What, what are they looking for this year?
2: Well, Zane, good to be with you. I think a few themes will emerge for 2023, right? If you think about the last year, the huge themes were, of course, central banks and their fight to tame inflation. And we spent a lot of time in 2022 looking at overall inflation. Of course, we had that peak of 9.1 percent in consumer prices here in the U.S. in June, and we have steadily come off of that. Looking ahead to 2023, there is going to be a lot more focus on non-shelter services inflation. In fact, Citibank putting out a note this morning saying that that will be the key theme for 2023. So less focus, Zane, on things like delivery times and commodity prices, which we focus on a lot for goods, inflation, inflation on physical items, durable goods and that sort of thing. More focus on labor market tightness. How much is the strong labor market here in the U.S. driving the current inflation? So to that end, we're going to be looking at uh, labor turnover. We're going to be looking at uh, certainly the unemployment rate. We're going to be looking at how many jobs are being added. And Zane, on that end, we'll actually get a few pieces of key data this week. the JOLTS data, which will tell us about job vacancies. We'll get the all-important monthly jobs report. The expectation there for this month, or for the month of December, rather, is an extra uh, 200,000 jobs being generated, being added, and wages increasing 0.4 percent. Both of those things, Zane, still suggest a strong market, but a cooling labor market, which I think markets would like to see.
1: And how much have investors priced in the possibility of a recession this year, do you think, Rahel?
2: Well, I think if you look at the major averages, Zane, and how they closed at the end of last year, you can see a lot of the bad news is already priced in, right? I mean, take a look at the Dow. That was the best performer of the major averages, and that closed off about 9 percent. The S&P closed off 19 percent. The Nasdaq closed off a whopping 30 percent. So you could certainly argue there is a lot of bad news already priced in. And the Fed, of course, has done so much in 2022. They uh, raised their benchmark policy rate 425 basis points, or 4.25%, uh, just in about nine months or so. So the Fed has already done a lot. There's already a lot of bad news baked into the markets. That said, the catalyst for growth, looking ahead, you get earnings season. That starts later this month. Uh, the labor market data, as I pointed to. And Zane, expect the first time we hear from Chair Powell, or I would argue any major Fed speakers, any dovish language, you're likely going to see market surge. They've been waiting for a sign from the Federal Reserve that they are Starting to slow on their interest rates hike and may actually start to stop. Once we get that, you do we do expect to see a, at least a short term rally for the markets. That's something they've been waiting for at this point uh, all year.
1: All right, well, Solomon, life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, disappointing deliveries. Tesla is saying it sold 1.3 million vehicles last year. That's up 40 percent from 2021, but. Short of Wall Street's expectation, shares of the company are down about 4% or so in pre-market trading. Paula Monica joins us live. So uh, let's just talk about Tesla and what happened last year. The last quarter for Tesla was particularly challenging. You had COVID outbreaks in China. Uh, you also had them offering pretty steep discounts on some of their cars as well just walk us through what the overall picture was for Tesla last year, taking into account what happened in the final quarter.
3: Yeah, in the final quarter, Zane, I think that Tesla recognized that there are growing worries about a recession and consumers that may be wary of buying pricey electric cars needed some incentives in order to do so. And Wall Street views that as a negative since Tesla has been such a high-growth story for a long period of time. Right now, though, there are worries about increased competition, of course. Just about every major global automaker is now selling some version of an electric vehicle to go after the Model S, X, 3, and Y, Tesla's big cars. And that is a concern. And then, of course, there's the whole Twitter distraction as well. Elon Musk has a lot on his plate. Uh, and now that he's running Twitter and seemingly uh, focused almost exclusively, at least based on his tweets, on what's going on at that social media company, investors are rightfully nervous that uh, you know there may be a bit of a leadership gap brain drain at Tesla. And the company is trying to, I think, address that as well now.
1: Exactly. And that brings me so graceful. Thank you for that pivot, Paul, because you bring me perfectly to the next point, which is that um, Elon Musk has hired Tom Zhu. Tom Zhu was in charge of uh, Tesla China. But now it appears as though he's now sort of shifting his responsibilities to be more in charge of Tesla U.S., which makes sense given how distracted Elon Musk is uh, with what's going ho- what's going on at Twitter.
3: Yeah, I think uh, that even though Tesla's stock is down or at least gonna be headed lower on uh, those uh, uh, deliveries numbers for the fourth quarter. This is good news, Zane. I think that there have been legitimate worries that Tesla is a one-person show, Elon Musk obviously, and that the company has had this revolving door of many other high-profile executives that have risen through the ranks only to wind up leaving the company. And again, that just leads to the perception that it's all Elon all the time. Having Zhu take over more responsibilities, to me, this sounds like it could be analogous to what's going on and has been going on for years at SpaceX, where Gwyn Shotwell is the widely respected number two at that company, that you don't have the worries, Zane, at SpaceX like you do at Tesla about Elon Musk being exclusively the one person running that company.
1: All right. Uh, Paul and Monica are for us there, thank you so much. An NFL star in critical condition after collapsing on the field. Buffalo Bills player DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest during the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Adrian Broaddus has more. The first Monday
4: night football game of 2023 between the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals ends abruptly in tragedy. After Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin's tackle on Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins to midfield and lowers the shoulder you see hamlin standing briefly and then collapsing on the field and now another bill's player is down
1: when i saw that young man fall to the ground the way he did it, um, it, it it felt like my soul had
5: left my body
4: within minutes after hamlin's collapse medical staff started cpr on him right on the field
3: usually you see players gather around a player and that happened tonight but when they saw them start doing chest compressions you saw the reaction of those players walking away and being distraught being very emotional the kind of thing we don't see on a football field
4: the 24 year old nfl star suffered a cardiac arrest according to the bills his heartbeat was restored on the field and an ambulance was driven onto the field to transport him to a local hospital
3: i've never seen anyone have CPR administered to them on the practice field or the or the game field. So that, that's when I became concerned.
4: Players huddled on the field visibly emotional. The NFL then postponed the game.
5: We were not ready for this. We were not prepared for this. These are all men that spend time together, growing together, making sure that one another is all right, doing whatever you have to do for your brother. And you are now put in the hopeless position of being absolutely helpless.
4: Hamlin is receiving care at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where fans could be seen holding vigil. NFL Executive Vice President of Football Operations, Troy Vincent says some of Hamlin's teammates decided to stay behind. Hamlin's teammate, Stefan Diggs, was captured in this video, arriving at the hospital to visit his friend and teammate. This, as well wishes, are pouring in from the sports world.
2: From the Cavalier organization, we want to wish the best and, and pray for everything goes well.
1: The safety of, our, of players in, in all sports is always the most important. So, um, you know, it was, a, it was a terrible thing to see. And Adrian Jones is us uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, I believe outside the hospital. So, I mean, Adrian, that video is... It's chilling. You know, you see him there stand up after that tackle and then he collapses to the ground. It really hammers home just how dangerous uh, the sport really is. You know, Zane, it's a brutal sport,
4: and the players have been telling us that since last night, and we've heard that before. Just, I do want to point out moments ago we spoke with Jordan Rooney. He is one of Mr. Hamlin's friends. He wasn't at the game, but if you take a step back, he did tell us his mother was there, so she watched all of this unfold. Right now, her son is here at the hospital behind me, listed in critical condition. According to the Buffalo Bills, he is sedated and fighting for his life. Here's more of what his friend had to say about him.
5: DeMar is someone who, he isn't someone who's like, oh, I want to be a football player because I want to be rich. He's someone who, he wants platform. He wants influence because he wants to, he wants to inspire other people. And I think that's what that's what everyone needs to remember, like, yeah, you watch him on TV, yeah, you know, um, you know, you may be a fan of, of the sport or the game. Um, this, is a, this is a person, a human being who means a lot to a lot of people. If there's anyone that, you know, have confidence in making it out of anything, it's him.
4: At 24, he was trying to inspire. He wanted to be influential and help others, especially those in his hometown. I asked his friend, when was the last time they spoke? He said, a short time ago. At a, they were talking about a toy drive that he sponsored. And that's the type of person he is. Giving back to the community that needs it most. Zane?
1: And that, that toy drive, uh, I understand, that GoFundMe page has now raised about $3 million. Just so many fans uh, across the country donating, just showing their, their love and their support for him at this uh, critical time. All right, Adrian Brodus, life for us there. Thank you so much. In Brazil, the Santos Football Club says that more than 150,000 people turned out to join the 24-hour wake for Pelé, who died last week. President Lula da Silva paid his respects... To the football legend at the stadium, uh, right now a procession is underway. These are live pictures: Pele's coffin being taken through the city before a private funeral. Julia Vargas joins us live now from Santos, Brazil. So, um, as we mentioned, the president, the brand new president of Brazil, paid uh, his respects uh, just recently. And when you think about it, Julia, Brazil, especially after the last election, is extremely divided, extremely divided politically. In the run-up to the elections, there was actually quite a bit of violence. How much is Pelé right now serving to unite the country, to sort of at least temporarily heal those divisions uh, in Brazil?
6: He's definitely serving as some kind of respite um, from a little bit of a break from what's going on politically. But just on Sunday, Brazil was able to finally take a deep breath Um, after months of wondering whether or not the country would have a democratic transition of power, a peaceful transition of power, Pelé's death has meant that Brazil could come together into something else. It, it, It is, in a way, a distraction, a very sad one, but also one of celebration. Because this morning, as we saw President Luisa Nassu, Lula Silva, come into the stadium, we witnessed a moment of joy. It was an outburst of joy. People were there in their Pelé jerseys cheering for Lula, wanting to turn the page on everything that has been happening. You know, Bolsonaro supporters took to the streets. They asked for military intervention. Bolsonaro said he was not going to accept the results of the elections. All of that being put behind us. Now, we are remembering what Brazil is really all about, what Brazil represents in the world stage. It's about excellence in sport. It's about the memory of this great man that was Pelé in what he represented to the Brazilian people, what he inspired in us. Um, Today, here at the cemetery, we will be seeing no more, uh, public is no longer able to access anyone that got to see him, got to see him at the stadium. At this point, this is only media, only family will be here. This is a private ceremony that will be taking place. Thousands were turned away. We saw lines going over two kilometers outside the stadium. And when I talked to the attendants at the stadium that were counting the numbers and see the people that were going inside, they told me they they just had to. In the last 40 minutes, more than 1600 people tried to get in and they managed to get everybody that got there on time in to see Pelé's casket, to say goodbye one last time. As his casket was loaded onto the fire truck that left the stadium, a drum line accompanied him. It gives me the chills to just think about this because it's such a Brazilian moment to say goodbye to this great man uh, with a drum line, with Brazilian flags, with Santos flags. It was just such... It's so Brazilian. It's, it speaks to the Brazilian soul and the way that we want to remember our idols. Zayn.
1: My gosh, Julia, I'm hearing just so much emotion uh, in your voice as you describe this. Just tell us a bit more about what you're feeling. Obviously, you're from this country. Obviously, you, have, you were born a lot longer, a lot later than you know, Pelé played. But clearly, this moment means so much to you personally.
6: It does. And as a Brazilian uh, who's been abroad for so long, um, I've been, I've seen this. I've seen people look at me and and hear my accent or say, oh, Brazil, Pelé. You know, for the past 17 years of my life, that's um, the first thing that people say to me. It's Pelé, samba, futebol. Those are the things that um, are attached to our country. And what he did is show that we could be excellent in something, that we could be the number one in one thing. Before Pelé, that wasn't Brazil's reputation it's hard to imagine what that was like right today that is the first thing people think about but it it wasn't like that he built this that is his legacy and people came after him he just opened that path for this kind of culture to be to to blossom Um, and and for me to see that that was an inspiration as well I mean I didn't grow up watching football I'll I'll be quite honest with you Uh, but it doesn't matter because he transcended that he went far beyond that and to see little kids, kids of color, black children, poor children, have an idol that in the 1960s was able to have achieved that kind of notoriety, to get that kind of recognition from the world. That is what I think is his true legacy, the most important thing that he did for this country and for all of us.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't have to know anything about football to know who Pelé uh, was. And I, I think that one of the things that, people love about him is just how humble he was despite all of the accolades all of the praise all of the fame which of course we know as an athlete can do quite a number on your ego if you're not careful he really always seemed to have that common touch and I think that's what people will miss most about uh, the legend Julia Vargas live for us there thank you so much Right. Crowds are continuing to flock to Vatican City to pay their respects to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. He is lying in state for a second day at St. Peter's Basilica. Around 25,000 people have already attended uh, this morning alone. All right. Coming up on First Move, it is the first trading session of 2023. Straight ahead. We have stock. We have a stock market outlook uh, for the year to come. Plus, autonomous drone deliveries. How an African startup is rapidly expanding its healthcare business. That's next. All right, welcome back to First Move. The curtain is about to go up on a new year of trading on Wall Street. Futures remain a bit off session highs, but we're still on track for a solidly higher open. The bulls hoping stocks can turn it around in 2023 after an almost 20% drop for the S&P 500 last year and a more than 30% fall for the Nasdaq. But lots of concern that markets will face new selling pressure of central banks' continue to raise rates. Earnings season, which begins later this month, will, of course, be critical uh, for sentiment as well. Brian Levitt joins me with his take on what to expect this year. He's the global market strategist at Invesco. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. So, um I think that for twenty twenty three the sort of good news on the horizon is that inflation does seem to be sort of slowing. What will that mean for how more or less hawkish you anticipate uh, the Fed to be this year?
5: Yeah, I think the Fed is likely coming towards the end of its tightening cycle, which is a positive for risk assets. Now, it's not going to be easy. Not every day is going to feel good, but ultimately, we should see the Federal Reserve back off the tightening stance, pause at, at a terminal rate of 5 percent um, and then pause. And, um, and, and that should give um, investors a, a bit of a breather, should, should invigorate, reinvigorate risk appetite in the markets.
1: So that's the good news. However, the fact is, because interest rates are so high, there, is, there are going to be ramifications of that. We are going to feel that.
5: Well, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, first, when the yield curve gets this deeply inverted, um, which, of course, it is, that usually signals the peak in long rates. And, of course, 10-year rates have come down off of its peak. So we would expect long rates over the year to come down as the economy goes through a, a, a slowdown or maybe even a contraction by the middle of the year. Now, with regards to businesses, um, we have to expect there to be some type of a default cycle. There are going to be businesses that are exposed that are only viable In a very low interest rate environment and now that they have to roll over debt are less viable but if you look at what's gone on in the markets s p 500 that was down 25 percent peak to drop high yield bond indices yielding something close to eight percent that's pricing in a lot of the pain the markets go first then the economy so the question for investors is have we priced it all in or is there more to come? I suspect that if we do have a recession, it'll likely be a more mild one, a more mild default cycle. And it's probable that we've already priced in a lot of the pain, or maybe all of the pain.
1: I see. And when it comes to interest rates, since you are just touching on uh, interest rates, obviously, we know that tech stocks love low interest rates. What do you see for tech stocks heading into 2023?
5: As interest rates come down, inflation moderates, the Fed pauses, that should help tech stocks recover some of what they had um, lost in in, uh, 2022. But what investors should think about, though, as they're thinking about a recovery, in a recovery phase of a cycle, you tend to see more smaller cap, more value-oriented parts of the market perform well. So growth stocks are going to participate in a recovery, but you tend to do better in um, the more value or cyclical parts of the market. Now, some of that is going to be in tech, but a lot of that will be more of your financials, your industrials, your materials, your early cyclicals that would do well or should likely outperform in a recovery.
1: Um, The IMF uh, put out a statement basically saying that, you know, there are Parts of the global economy that will not do too well in 2023. I mean, uh, Chris Lina Georgieva talked about the U.S., the EU and China all slowing down simultaneously. And this idea that even in the U.S., which might avoid a recession, it still will feel like a recession, especially in the early parts of this year. Do you agree with that?
5: Yeah, I do. And, and look, but there's different there's different things to consider when you're talking about Main Street versus Wall Street. So remember, the Federal Reserve's goal here was to make us feel less wealthy, to slow down the economy. And and they've certainly succeeded in doing that. And so policy operates with with lagged effects. So we're still going to feel the brunt of that policy tightening as we move through the first half of this year. But remember, the markets are already down peak to trough 25.4%. On average, in a recession the last 10, you're down 31%. But you've got more mild recessions like 1991, 1981, where you're, you're down around 25 27%. So um, we've likely priced a lot of it in. So what investors should be focusing on is not the lagged economic data, Lagged economic data is, is going to show a weakening environment. What they should be focusing on are leading indicators that suggest signs of a recovery. Good ones to focus on, of course, would be what's the 10-year doing? What's the dollar doing? If those are easing, coming down, it suggests that the market's looking ahead to a different policy cycle and the early stages of a recovery.
1: All right, Brian Levitt, life us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, still to come, we'll take you to China where COVID cases are surging. Let's uh, okay. next. Stay with us. bringing <laughs> in the new year. Welcome back to First Move. Uh, That is the opening bell, the first time the opening bell has rung on Wall Street in 2023 this year. Uh, U.S. stocks beginning the new year in the green. The Dow is up ever so slightly. Tech stocks among the best performers so far in early trading. Global investors are hoping to turn the page after a disappointing and somewhat, you know, let's be honest, unusual 2022, which saw both stocks and bonds suffering losses. The first few days of the year are Extremely important for traders from a psychological standpoint, especially after the cross-the-board weakness that we saw last year. Lots. Uh, of challenges for investors in the days ahead that will surely affect trade as well. New job numbers are out on Friday and a fresh round of consumer inflation data will be released uh, next week. So two important things that investors are watching very closely. Stocks in Hong Kong kicking off the new year with gains of almost 2%, the best start to a trading year for the Hang Seng since 2018. The Shanghai Composite finishing higher as well in the hopes that China's recent COVID spike will soon peak. Right now, however, China is seeing a huge wave of new infections after Beijing abruptly lifted COVID health restrictions late last year. Some reports suggest as many as 70% of the population of Shanghai may already have been infected, with hospitals filled to the brim, filled to capacity. Despite the surge in cases, China is threatening countermeasures against countries that have placed new restrictions on travelers from China, calling the new measures excessive. Uh, They're also saying it's unacceptable. South Korea, meantime, now requiring passengers from Hong Kong and Macau to show a negative PCR test uh, before departure. Senior international correspondent Ivan Watson is in Hong Kong for us. So, Ivan, just walk us through some of these sort of countermeasures that Beijing is talking about imposing on countries that are restricting uh, Chinese travellers.
7: Right. We don't quite know specifically what those might be yet. What we do know is that there is uh, a growing backlash from the Chinese government and Chinese state media uh, to the growing number of governments that are imposing restrictions on travel to their territory uh, from not only mainland China, but also in most cases from uh, the territories of of Hong Kong uh, and Macau. Uh, This perhaps all the more ironic because for for the better part of three years, China kind of self-isolated itself, imposed very strict quarantines, wouldn't allow travel into China. That is supposed to end on January 8th. It is going to end the quarantines that have been imposed for years on travelers trying to get into China. And just as it's trying to do this, again, this growing number of countries that are saying, well, hang on now, you should at least get a, a negative COVID test within 48 hours of getting on the plane to our territory. So the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson uh, said that those kind of measures, quote, lack scientific basis and some practices are unacceptable. Some Chinese state media has gone a step further. The Global Times tabloid, this nationalistic tabloid, has said that this is another chance to defame China. It kind of singled out the US and Japan, uh, which have imposed some of these restrictions. But actually, if you look at a map at the number of countries that CNN has compiled, you can see that uh, these countries are all around the world that are either demanding uh, uh, negative COVID tests before travelers from China get on the planes, or in the case of Morocco, have completely banned, at least temporarily, travel from China uh, to their territory. Another country, South Korea, uh, has taken a measure of uh, travelers coming from China. They're basically being pulled aside for tests on site because South Korea said on the first day uh, of travel direct f- from China, uh, that was Monday, or the first day that they were requiring PCR tests, they got 61 positive cases out of about 309 travelers on that very first day that they implemented that measure. So, so this is kind of a disagreement that's likely to continue to grow as China continues to wrestle with um, the growing waves of COVID infections around the country. Uh, One scientific model that's been put forth by a Chinese uh, health journal uh, says that the uh, infections have likely peaked in the major cities, uh, but that the peaks won't hit the rural areas, central and western China, really into the middle or the end of this month. And we have the, the spring festival, the Chinese Lunar New Year coming up, That uh, this uh, modeling report suggests that the uh, infections will probably spread all the more as you get the the massive movement of humanity uh, for that holiday travel. Zane.
1: All right. Ivan Watson, life was there. Thank you. All right. It's still not clear how many Russian soldiers were killed during a New Year's Day missile attack in occupied eastern Ukraine. But anger is certainly increasing among some Russian nationalists who are demanding punishment for commanders in their own army, who they say ignored the dangers. Kiev says the number of Russians killed in Makivka is being clarified after initially claiming that it was around 400. The Russian defense ministry has said 63 soldiers died. It comes as Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky says Russia is planning a prolonged attack.
8: Our task is to give Ukraine successes,
0: achievements, even small yet victories over terrorists and terror on a daily basis. Each shot down drone, each shot down missile, each day with electricity for our people and minimal schedules of power outages are exactly such victories.
1: CNN's Scott McLean is in Kyiv. So, Scott, back to the attack in Makivka, the defence ministry, the Russian defence ministry, saying that 63 Russians died. How rare is it for Moscow or for Russia just to come out and admit so many fatalities on their own side?
8: Yeah, I think it's an indication that probably the true number is substantially higher than what they're conceding thus far. And there's even some indications... Plenty of indications, really, that are piling up right now from the Russian side that, in fact, those numbers are higher. You have pro-Russian officials, you have pro-Russian bloggers saying that, look, they are still on the scene, they are still picking through the rubble, they are still trying to figure out how many bodies may have been under there. And if you look at the latest pictures from the scene in Makivka of what was once a vocational school, it is pretty difficult to imagine how anyone could have possibly survive that, how there could possibly be any survivors still under the rubble. It is literally a pile of rocks. There's one wall, it appears still standing, and then there's a lot of heavy machinery that are trying to pick through it right now. And this is attracting a lot of criticism, as you said. There is one uh, pro-Russian blogger who says that, look, Russian command has been sloppy. There's another who says that Uh, incompetence, even 10 months into the war, is still a big, big problem, that you shouldn't have a situation where you have these, um, you know, this kind of concentration of Russian troops in one tiny, small area, essentially making them sitting ducks. And you have a former official in the occupied Donetsk region, the Donetsk People's Republic, who says that, look, Russian military leaders clearly have not got the message yet that the message or that the weapon that the Russians believe that the Ukrainians use, the HIMARS artillery system, a longer-range artillery system, they still don't quite understand the full scope of it, and they ought to by now. That weapon, by the way, supplied by the United States. And one other thing to mention, and you said it uh, in your introduction, there is a Russian lawmaker who says that there ought to be criminal liability when it comes to this. And he's not talking about the Ukrainians. He is talking about the Russian military leaders, the intelligence leaders who allowed this concentration of troops to actually happen
1: there. All right, Scott McLean, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, let's get back to Brazil now as Pele's coffin continues its procession through Santos before a private funeral, Stefano Pozzavine. Joins us live. Uh, Stefano, uh, you and I spoke about this yesterday, but Pele, of course, we know meant so much to all Brazilians, but specifically to Afro Brazilians uh, as well, and actually black athletes all around the world.
9: Yes, indeed. I mean, he was an icon of the 20th century in a country that has uh, a complicated history with uh, racism, you know, with racial policy, just like the rest of South America. Brazil, for those who don't know, has the largest uh, Afro-descendant population in South America, especially in uh, the uh, Atlantic Ocean coast around the states of uh, Bahia. But for decades, Pelé was a symbol of of, uh, what an Afro uh, athlete could achieve in uh, a country that, during the colonial time and the first years as an independent country, was essentially white, aiming to, to recreate uh, a sort of European, um, European racial profile. That said, Zane, I think we should really enjoy and uh, appreciate the moment we are living through in history because this has been a roller coaster of emotions, uh, and right now, no emotion uh, is higher than seeing. Uh, the Pelé's own family who's standing over there saying on the rooftop of the house where Pelé's 100-year-old mum still lives to this day. Those, uh, you see some of them waving. Uh, um, the woman most uh, on to the right is uh, Pelé's sister, Doña Lucia. You see a flag is being brought up. On the flag it's written Pelé Eternal, Pelé Forever. And you can see all the fans here and just to understand the scale of what we are witnessing today there are four blocks uh, of these roads that have completely jammed by fans all trying to get a glimpse of this house that is so significant for the city And uh, a glimpse of this family, you also know that yesterday was uh, the public wake uh, in the sense that there was a a stadium. We understand that over 200,000 people paid their respect inside the stadium. That
1: is uh, more than... Oh, Oh, Okay. It looks as though we have lost uh, Stefano's shot. Okay, this is a live picture of uh, Pele on his way going to that private funeral. I'm sure um, Stefano was just showing us images of Pele's family outside his house. And I'm sure all of the tributes, all of the well wishes, all the outpouring of love and support from the crowds certainly giving them comfort at this really difficult time. Uh, But again, Pele heading back for a private funeral after uh, lying in state uh, for 24 hours just yesterday. All right, Uh, still to come on First Move, expanding access to healthcare in Africa, one drone delivery at a time. I speak with the CEO of Zipline after the break. (music) Welcome back to First Move. One company is taking healthcare delivery to new heights. In 2016, Rwanda partnered with drone delivery company Zipline to deliver blood across the country. At the end of last year, Zipline announced a $61 million deal to expand the partnership, making it the country's nationwide drone service. The new investment should enable Zipline to complete nearly 2 million deliveries and fly to more than 200 million kilometers in Rwanda by the year 2029. And Zipline's Hoping the deal convinces governments in other countries to enter similar partnerships with them, of course, as well. Joining me live now is Zipline CEO Kella Ronaldo Clifton. Kella, thank you so much uh, for being with us. So, your company essentially delivers whole blood, uh, frozen plasma platelets uh, to sort of rural locations where a distribution network is harder, is a lot more tricky. For your delivery company, for this drone sort of delivery network company, why did you think that a strong medical delivery or healthcare delivery component uh, was an important aspect to your business?
10: Well, thanks for having me, Zane. And When we started in 2016, we were delivering blood to 21 different hospitals throughout the country. Uh, We've expanded from there into, you know, today we deliver over 250 different kinds of medical products. We've delivered 2 million doses of vaccine, of COVID vaccine, uh, 5 million doses of traditional vaccine. Uh, We deliver 75% of the national blood supply of Rwanda outside the capital today. Uh, And we started with healthcare because we believe that where you live should not determine whether you live. Uh, So we think that you know, as you start to see these kind of transformations in logistics toward zero emission, instant, autonomous delivery, it's really, really important to make sure that that delivery serves all people equally and that it ensures equal access to healthcare products uh, for every person on Earth.
1: And so, what are the real-world implications of that? This idea of equitable distribution. Obviously, you're playing an important part of of that. Uh, what are the real-world um, implications? Do you think?
10: Yeah, there, there are a lot. And in fact, you know, over the last year, we've seen a lot of academic studies sort of wrap up over the course of a couple of years. One done by uh, University of Pennsylvania in Rwanda demonstrated that not only has this new kind of logistics been able to reduce national blood waste by 66 percent, But it's also been able to reduce maternal mortality in the hospitals that have access to this kind of service by 88 percent over the last two years. So it turns out that logistics and healthcare are inextricably linked and making a wide variety of products more readily available at every primary care facility and hospital in the country has a big impact on patient health.
1: Let's talk about logistics. So um, you guys sort of own, operate and build, design, manufacture, et cetera. Uh, your own drones. You have these distribution centers that are kind of like drone airports. And then these drones fly to a 50-mile radius, uh, a 50-mile sort of radius from where the distribution centers are located. But from the moment you get a call that, let's say, a hospital somewhere in Rwanda needs blood, for example, or medication or whatever it is, just walk us through how it works uh, in terms of the time that you you get the call to how the medication or blood or whatever it is, is delivered.
10: Yeah, actually you can see the manufacturing floor uh, behind me this is this is not a uh you know this, this is the the um the factory uh you know the the this experience for customers needs to be extremely simple for the service to be magical so it really is you know press a button on a phone or place a call and you can get what you need uh instantly so anybody in the u.s if you've used any kind of instant delivery service whether that was you know doordash or grubhub um, it's not it's not totally dissimilar than that, uh, but instead of using a 3,000-pound gas combustion vehicle driven by a human, Zipline manufactures these light, fast, electric, autonomous uh, aircraft that you can see behind me, and we use those to provide an instant logistics system at national scale that hospitals, patients, families uh, can depend on, day in, day out, 24-7,
5: 365.
1: But what are the challenges, especially when it comes to, let's say, delivering you know vaccines, which have to be stored at certain temperatures. Um, walk us through some of the challenges when it comes to the, the, the delivery of certain kinds of medical products.
10: Well, you know, last year we actually announced this new partnership with Pfizer to, to uh, begin delivering COVID nineteen vaccine. As I mentioned, Zipline's now delivered two million doses, and that's increasing a lot in 2023. Uh, that's a that's an ultra cold chain dependent product. A lot of the products we deliver are cold chain dependent, so for example, pack red blood cells have to be refrigerated. Um, the advantage is when you're delivering really fast, it actually means that there are fewer cold chain requirements in transit. Uh, so zipline is already certified by the health systems that we work with to deliver, you know, the, the, the whole spectrum of medical products from ultra cold chain, like COVID vaccines to cold chain, like blood to non cold chain, like say antiretrovirals. Um, so, uh, You know, we we do everything necessary to keep the products cold at our distribution centers as well as keep them cold in transit. But it really helps us that transit is only on average, you know, 10 to 30 minutes rather than 10 hours.
1: Right. Right. All right. Um, Thank you for that. Keller Renato Clifton, CEO of Zipline. We appreciate it. All right. Coming up here on First Move, FTX founder Sam bankman fried expected back in court in New York. We'll bring you the details uh, next. The man, once dubbed the king of crypto, will be back in court on Tuesday. Uh, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is, is set for his second federal court appearance in New York, where the prosecutors are accusing him of cheating customers and investors out of billions of dollars. Bankman-Fried uh, faces eight criminal charges from wire fraud to conspiracy by misusing uh, customer funds. Kara Scannell joins us live now. So, Kara, he's expected to plead non, not guilty today. What more can we tell us? can you tell us?
11: Yeah, that's right, Zane. So in a few hours from now, Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, will appear for the second time in the federal courthouse behind me. Today, he will be arraigned. That means he will go before a judge and be asked to enter a plea on those eight federal charges that he's facing. Those include counts of wire fraud and multiple counts of conspiracy. The sources tell us that Bankman-Fried is expected to plead not guilty to those charges. And of course, uh, later down the road, if he is convicted, he could face up to 115 years in prison. Now, prosecutors have called this a fraud of epic proportions. Bankman-Fried is accused of stealing billions of dollars from customers and using it to cover debt by a related hedge fund called Alameda Research, to make political donations and to buy real estate. Now, he has maintained in interviews that he gave before he was charged and arrested in this case, saying that he never intentionally defended, intended to defraud anybody. He's denied that there was. A fraud at all. Um, So he will appear in court today. Uh, He's not expected to say much. Usually the defendants are not required to say anything other than enter their plea in this case, which we understand will be that he will plead not guilty. Uh, That will take place a little later today. And, of course, Bankman-Fried is out on bail, so we are waiting for his arrival at the courthouse. He is out on a $250 million bond. Uh, He also is um, at home consignment at his parents' home in Palo Alto, California. They, of course, are Stanford law professors. Uh, Zane. So we're just expecting his arrival sometime in the next few hours for this court appearance later today. And of course, you know, this drew a lot of public attention the last time he was here, since he was had to be extradited from the Bahamas. So this will be the second time that he will be out in public since facing these in, uh, these serious, serious charges, Zane.
1: Mike right, Canal live for us there. Thank you so much. And finally, on First Move, an amateur golfer invited to play in the Masters tournament. Uh, By mistake, he has the same name as PGA golfer, Scott Stallings.
4: Okay, Scott, why are we at the UPS store?
1: Because I'm having to send my invitation
7: to play at the Masters back to the other Scott Stallings.
4: Oh, I'm sorry. I, I tried. I'm sorry. That's
7: okay.
1: Okay, here goes nothing. (laughs) <laughs> okay. He told the at first, um, the pro golfer thought it was a prank, but he was convinced after seeing a photo of the interpretation posted on Instagram. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Zain Asher. Appreciate you joining us. I'll be back in a couple of hours with uh, One World. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is next.